Well, we've come to chapter two in our studies in Mark, which is found on page 837 of your pew Bible. Mark chapter two, verses one through twenty two. We're entering into really a new section here in Mark, as we will see. Uh, So far, we've seen the beginning of Jesus's ministry, how he has called the first disciples to himself, done many works of the kingdom healing and cleansing people, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And now we begin to look at a point where opposition begins to take place against Jesus. So read together with me, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. And when he returned to Capernaum after many days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples, that is John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine... It's for fresh wineskins. You may not be a football fan, but you may have seen in the news a number of weeks ago 
that following one of the first games of the season, a game between Boise State and the University of Oregon, that a fight ensued. Boise State triumphed over Oregon, and a little bit of trash talk was taking place. And so the star court, or star running back of the University of Oregon laid a punch right on the jaw of one of the players of Boise State. He was subsequently suspended for the remainder of the season, something that I think will have lasting effects in his opportunity to play in the pros. But nonetheless, his coach, the University of Oregon's coach, made an impassioned speech following the game in the locker room. They had lost their game. They had hopes of a BCS game. That's a a championship series game at the end of the season. And that seemed to be lost with their loss. Not only the fact that his star running back had now put himself in jeopardy for the rest of the season. What he said to his uh, soldiers, his troops, his players was basically, I'm going to work you hard and it's going to be difficult and you're going to have to face adversity. The question is, can you handle it and are you with me? And that is a question that really lingers with people who run into Jesus. Are you with me or are you against me? So often we want to define relationships on our own terms. We define relationships in ways that we please. Relationships with our friends and family. And sometimes when a person with greater weight than us comes on the scene, somebody that we have to deal with, then we have to deal with the question, are we with them? Are we with them? Are we going to submit to their authority? Are we going to bend our will around theirs? And oftentimes there's a period in which we are uncertain if we want to do that and we begin asking questions. And that's exactly what has happened in these particular episodes with Jesus. People see Jesus at work and they're not sure about his authority. They're not sure if they're with him. In fact, many people are not with him. And so they begin asking questions. Why does this man speak like this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Questions, because they're not sure if they want to submit to Jesus. You see, there's rising opposition now against Christ. He's done some wonderful things, but in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, what they see in Jesus makes them uncomfortable because they're not sure if Jesus fits into their paradigm. And so their relationship with Jesus is one of tension and conflict. And so really, there are five episodes. We're looking at three this morning. We'll look at the following two next week. But there are five episodes here in which Jesus is almost like a soldier who takes off one of his hand grenades, pulls the pin, and then drops it in the room and waits for something to happen. An explosion. And that's exactly what happens in each one of these episodes. Jesus does something knowing there's going to be a reaction. And he waits for the explosion. He waits for the question to come. And then he handles it. And so here we see these three particular episodes and learn some things about Christ. 
It's as if Jesus is saying to them and really to us, if you want to have fellowship with me, if you want to know me, if you want to have any benefit from me and from my gospel of grace, then you need to let me be the one to define the relationship and how we are going to relate to one another. In other words, we're to drop the questions and let Jesus be the one to supply the right answers. Now, that often is difficult for us. I would say that every person who comes to Christ doesn't simply just lay down the arms and follow Jesus unreservedly for the rest of their lives. We all go through various periods of resistance. You see this in the life of the disciples in Jesus's earthly ministry. Think particularly of Peter. How often did Peter argue with Jesus? So much so that Jesus rebuked him over and over and said, get behind me, Satan. Even after Pentecost, when Peter saw the vision of the sheep coming down with various unclean meats, according to the Old Testament law, and God said, kill and eat. Peter rebuked him. Lord, I've never eaten one of these things. I've never eaten anything unclean. What he's showing is that there's a sense of resistance in every one of our hearts to Jesus, even after we come to him in faith. And there are various places in our hearts that Jesus sort of has to open up and sometimes drop in a hand grenade and wait for the explosion until we're willing to submit to him and say, Jesus, your authority over me is good and I will follow you. And so what do we need to know from Jesus in these three episodes? The first thing is this. Jesus identifies and solves our greatest problem. Jesus identifies and solves our greatest problem. We see the the scene set here. Jesus returned to Capernaum, presumably from preaching the gospel of the kingdom in Capernaum. There were people gathered together uh, at uh, his home that most likely was Simon Peter's home there beside the sea. Many were gathered together so that there was such a great crowd. Nobody else could fit into the room. And here comes this man who is a paralytic. We're told and they came, verse three, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. Likely they've gone out the uh, gone up the outside steps and dug a hole through the roof. And then lowered their friend, this paralytic, down to Jesus to see what Jesus would do for him. But notice Jesus's assessment of this man. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Not exactly what he was coming for, was it? He was waiting for Jesus to say, get up and walk. He was waiting for Jesus to solve what he perceived in his own mind was his greatest problem. After all, it was a problem that had defined him for most likely many years. It had defined the way that he related to people. It had defined his social place. It had defined the fact that he could not work and make a living and was given to just beg for some kind of subsistence living. This problem defined the man and his life. I'm sure there was a sense of disappointment in his heart. But 
you might think of what amazing friends this paralytic has to bring him to Jesus for healing. Now, the question I think that we need to ask ourselves and probably need to ask ourselves repeatedly, what do we perceive is our greatest problem in life? What do we perceive is our greatest problem in life? There may be one or two things right now that have just popped into your head. We can probably list off a number of problems that we all face in this life, things that we may be anxious about, worried about. Maybe we consider work to be our greatest problem. Maybe we consider a sense of depression to be our greatest problem. Maybe we consider loneliness to be our greatest problem. Maybe we even consider our spouse to be our greatest problem. A lack of beauty. A lack of money. A lack of standing. The fact that you're not as good at sports as you would love to be. That your family doesn't understand you. That your tax burden is too great. That you don't have all the toys that you want. We could go on and on, couldn't we? There are the problems that are real. They are real problems. And yet they are the highlight of our anxiety and thinking when we consider what our greatest problem is. And Jesus here looks at this man who thinks he knows what his greatest problem is and sees things differently. We often come to Jesus wanting him to solve what we consider to be our greatest problem. Sometimes that's not the problem that he chooses to solve because it's not actually our greatest problem and one for which we don't need solving at that point because he may simply choose to use it for better purposes in our life. We think if he will just do this, my life would be so much better. Now, I mentioned that these are real problems, and I, I, and I don't want to say that they're not. I don't want to diminish the anxiety and the reality of earthly problems in this life because there are real earthly problems, ones that may contort and distort us, ones that bring great frustration, ones that bring great anxiety into our lives. I mean, this man is off actually a paralytic in the ancient world with no social services, no one to help him. It is amazing that he has friends and friends that would do this for him unless they're just looking for a sideshow from Jesus. Jesus knows this. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was without a home. Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed by friends. He knew real earthly problems. He knows your earthly problems probably far better than we know our earthly problems. But there's one that's far out of proportion compared to everything else. And Jesus touches on it. My son, your sins are forgiven. It's this man's sin that is the greatest problem and provides the greatest need in his life. And if we don't see that, it's like going to the doctor thinking that we need an antibiotic for our sinus infection. And the doctor says, now, wait a minute. What we really need to deal with is the cancer that is eating your body alive. 
and saying to him, no, thank you, just give me the antibiotic. And Jesus is saying to his church, listen to me. I know your problems are real, but your greatest need, your greatest need is that I would forgive you and cleanse you of your sins. That's the man's greatest problem. Not only because it's true of each one of us, because its effects mar our lives, but it is the problem that comes with eternal consequences. Because this is a problem that if not dealt with, a problem for which there, if there is no solution, then anything that you might face in this life pales in comparison to the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, to the eternal condemnation and judgment of God. He says, let's take care of the first things first. Let's deal with your greatest need. We need to be thankful that Jesus is able to see right through us to know exactly what our greatest need is. That He's just not looking at the surface. But that He has such a compassion for this man's brokenness. Not only his paralysis, but for the fact that the eternal weight of God's judgment lays upon him. Oh, praise God that He can know that about us. That He can see us clearly for who we are. And so we need to hear these words from Jesus. My son, your sins are forgiven. And yet this causes a a great uproar here in this little house where Jesus is preaching. He knew that it would have this kind of impact on the crowd. And we see the the tension mounting in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they had that right. Only God can forgive sins. But what they missed was, well, then who is Jesus that stands before us? Is he God or is he merely a man? So Jesus, wanting to raise the stakes a bit, says to them immediately in verse eight, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So he's going to touch on the real problem in them, the unbelief that they have, the sin of unbelief, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, think about that, which is easier from their perspective. Much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody could say that. Who knows if it's true? From their perspective, it's much more difficult to say, rise, take up your mat and walk. And you can almost hear a pin drop in the room. I mean, the tension is thick. What's going to happen? Everybody is waiting. What is Jesus going to do? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And he rose. Jesus is saying, now look at me. I'm the son of man and I have authority to forgive sins. Come to me and I will deal with your greatest problem. See, that's the glory of this passage is not only that Jesus could put his finger 
on our greatest problem. But He can solve it. He can solve it. Because in actuality, the harder thing is going to be for Jesus to forgive sins. Because it's going to cost Him His life. Jesus can do what He says here. My son, your sins are forgiven. Because He and He alone is the one who's able to pay for our sins. Oh, that's what makes the Gospel good news. And it's really to the degree that we understand what our greatest sin is, or our greatest problem is, just the depth of our sin, just how much we need Jesus and the great solution that He provides, is to that extent that we begin to mature in the faith. That as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, that Jesus becomes our great boast, that we boast in no other, because there's no one else to boast in. Because He and He alone can provide the solution our greatest problem. And so not only does Jesus identify and solve our greatest problem, but secondly, Jesus loves the humble in heart. Jesus loves the humble in heart. We see this in the second episode here. Jesus, we're told, went out again beside the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, most likely going back into the city now, he saw Levi That is Matthew, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, here Jesus is not appointing Levi to be an apostle yet. That will actually come in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. But really what he's calling him to is discipleship. Follow me. That's what discipleship means. Follow after your master. And here we've been told twice so far that people rose. Here a man rises to follow Jesus. He's going to submit his life to him. And we're told here, or actually told in Luke's gospel, that Levi leaves everything. And that is significant because Levi is a tax collector. He's most likely a relatively wealthy man in a poverty-stricken culture. And so it is a significant thing that Levi gets up, rises, and leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Now the question is, why does he call Levi a tax collector? If you think about it, you know that tax collectors were despised. They were noted for extorting money out of people. Most likely here, Levi has been working for Herod Antipas to collect tradable goods along Uh, the Sea of Galilee there. So why does Jesus call Levi? He would be despised by the crowd. You could probably almost hear the crowd gasp, the crowd that's following Jesus, when Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Had he seen something of the marks of faith in Levi up to this point? Maybe Levi had heard Jesus' preaching at some point and somehow showed a a sense of faith, a a real fruit of genuine faith in Jesus. After all, we're told in verse 1 of the chapter, this was Jesus' home. Jesus had been here preaching the gospel. Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus delights to call unlikely candidates into His kingdom. 
unlikely candidates like Levi, a man who most likely had been thrown out of the synagogue for being a tax collector, a man who brought shame on his family, a man who would no longer be allowed to be a witness in a courtroom setting because he was untrustworthy as a tax collector. So here he is. Jesus calls a man like that and Levi gets up and follows him. And what does he do? Verse 15, he's throwing a party, a conversion party. Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So here, Levi says to Jesus, come to my house, let's celebrate. And who does he call? He calls all of his cronies. The other tax collectors and sinners. And it's those people who are welcomed in. And so Jesus reclines around the table, feasting with those people. Now, by the way, that's a, that's a mark of genuine conversion, isn't it? To rejoice so much in your conversion that you tell everybody, come and see. Come listen to Jesus. Come hear the Word of God. He couldn't contain himself and he wanted all of his friends to know of the grace that had been shown to him. Now, this party, this celebration that's taking place in Levi's house may have been in his courtyard, which would mean that passersby would see it. And maybe the scribes and the Pharisees hung around the perimeter. They they would not go in because they despised a tax collector. Someone like this most likely would not have tithed the food. They wouldn't have held to the ritual purity laws of cleanliness when preparing the food. And so the food would be detestable to them. And so no wonder that they come to Jesus then with a question. Why does he eat, or actually to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Surely Jesus knows better than to do this. And what Jesus would do would be to shock their systems. Not by separating from tax collectors and sinners. But by separating from self-righteous people like the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, he would do what would appear to them on the surface to be the opposite of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Jesus is sitting in the seat of scoffers and sinners. What is he doing? But you see, Jesus doesn't do that to become one of them. He does it to change them. And that's exactly what he's done for Levi. And the Pharisees just can't see it. And so he tells them this little parable. Verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to but to call the sinners. Jesus is using a bit of irony here. And just as the the physician of the soul, he's saying that those who come to me know that they are sick. And the irony is that the righteous or the healthy are those people who can't see that they are sick and therefore they'll never benefit from the grace that only Jesus can bring, from the healing and the restoration that only Jesus can bring. 
But you see, Jesus loves the humble because it's the humble who are willing to come to him to receive his grace. You know, humility is a very attractive quality to most of us, one for which I have not been blessed, but one nonetheless that is attractive to us. What it communicates to us is that this person opposite of us who is humble says, I know that I'm not better than you. And yet our pride basically projects to the other person, I do think that I'm better than you. And that is a sense of what the Pharisees felt towards Jesus. Why does he eat with these people? Because they thought that they were better than Jesus. And you know, humility is attractive to Christ as well. Jesus came from the pure holiness of heaven. The pure holiness and love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And would these little men seek to teach Jesus a lesson about holiness and purity because they didn't eat with people who failed to tithe the food, who failed to keep ritual washing? How pathetic. Jesus would say, if you would have anything of me, then you must be humble and understand that you are sick at heart. You know, every bit of our pride is basically a hindrance to fellowship with Jesus. Just as our pride is a hindrance to fellowship with other people, our pride is a hindrance to fellowship with Jesus. So think about that. At every point in your heart where there's a sense of resistance to Christ, a sense of pride that you know better, you know better than Jesus, that I know better of the right assessment of my own sin, and it's not really that bad, that I know better the commands to keep, I know better how to finesse this situation, I know better than the wisdom of Jesus. What am I doing? Keeping Jesus at bay. And I'm saying you're not welcome here. Your authority, your power, your grace, and your love are not welcome here. And so we need to be those people who are humble and lowly in heart, who recognize that they need a physician because humility actually opens the door to greater fellowship with Christ. If, if you feel as though you are distant from the Lord, if you feel as though you're going through just the perfunctory duties as a Christian, if you feel as though day after day you're expected to be a certain way, but you just don't feel like giving yourself to the Lord in that way, it may just be that fellowship with Christ has been withheld because of your pride. And is there any place where you need to be broken and come humbly and say, Lord, I'm sick. Lord, I'm sick. Make me well. Because Jesus delights to love the humble. And not only that, but let me mention the last thing here. Jesus demands a wholesale commitment to him. Jesus demands a wholesale 
commitment to him. We see this here in verses 18 down through 22. You know, the typical practice of the Jews up until this point was to fast twice a day, every Monday, every Thursday. It was a practice that may have developed in the intertestamental times just after the period of the Maccabees. Uh, It's even cited in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, how they would fast twice a day. And so people come to Jesus with a question. Verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the law of God only prescribed one day of fasting in the year. And that was in preparation for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And so here, these uh, men have basically created a new standard of righteousness, which is not only to fast once a year, because if that is good, we'll fast twice a week. How much better will that be for us? Now, that's the tendency of the human heart, isn't it? To create our own sense of righteousness, our own standard, our own markers of righteousness. We have our hymns that we, we sing. We have our list of Christian freedoms that we are able to enjoy. And those people over there, well, they just don't know real religion because they're not enjoying our particular freedoms that we have in Christ. We all come up with a list of standards. And that's exactly what these people have done. And so much like them, we look at the world and we say, why don't they? And you fill in the blank. Why don't they? In other words, why aren't they pursuing righteousness like I'm pursuing righteousness? Because we want to define ourselves by our own standards. And yet the irony about fasting was. It was to be an act of mourning. Self-affliction even. As a way of communicating a sense of repentance for sin. Not a means of earning and meriting and establishing yourself as being righteous. And yet with all of their fasting, this reality of repentance is absent. Which, by the way, just as an aside, I think it's interesting how People, because it's not actually the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees who asked this question, but it's people we're told. It's interesting how people around us can be led astray by our, quote, religious activity and our false standard of what's righteous. Led astray from understanding what the true reality of the gospel is and led astray from Jesus. Because that's exactly what's taking place. People come to him. Now, wait a minute. This is what we see over here. And we don't see that in you, Jesus. We don't see that in your disciples. And so I think we need to consider that as well as an aside. But, you know, likely these two groups, John's disciples, the Pharisees disciples, they fasted for different reasons. John's disciples may have fasted out of mourning for the fact that John had been arrested. Chapter one, verse 14. The Pharisees, however, as is evident, and you can read of this in Matthew chapter six. Fasted out of a sense of self-righteousness, wanting their faces to look contorted so that everybody would know, wow, look how righteous they are. They must be really good by how bad they look. Most have or they both missed the elephant in the room. 
And Jesus points that fact out to them. Verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, if you're at a wedding feast and you're there at the reception, you don't fast as long as the bridegroom is present. You rejoice. But he says there will be a day. He goes on in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. In that day, the day of the crucifixion, they will fast because they mourn for Jesus. In other words, they don't do it out of self-righteousness. They do it because they love Jesus. And they're captivated by Him and the glory of His grace. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is your religious activity is worthless if it is not oriented around me. If it's not oriented around me. And that's the very thing that he tells them in these two little parables. Verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worse and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. What is he saying here? He's saying you can't take me. And tack me on to your old system. And squeeze me into your mold. And form me so that I do what you want. I do your expectations of what's righteous. But he says instead, you come to me. And you throw away the old. And you grab a hold of the new. Which is Christ himself. In other words, Jesus is not an add-on to our lives. You can't accept his lordship just over a few things in your life. As long as it fits your purposes, as long as Jesus fits into your mold, you'll you'll live in submission to his authority. But rather oftentimes grabbing hold of Jesus is like grabbing a hold of a freight train. And he's just throwing you all over the place. You jumped on for a nice ride and he's throwing you about and knocking you from here and to here and there. And oftentimes that's what it takes to humble us so that our resistance level to Jesus diminishes and we begin to grow in him. So often we we want to sequester Jesus into certain cavities in our lives and we say Jesus this is where you're welcome. But you're not welcome over here because I'm not sure what you're going to do over here if you infiltrate that particular area of my life. And so we begin to compartmentalize our lives. We have certain things we do over here, certain things we do over here. We have certain religious activities that we do at times even. And sometimes even those religious activities have nothing to do with Christ. There's simply a way that we can feel as though we are righteous. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that with me. If you come to me, you must bow before me and receive my good authority over you and receive all the grace that I can give to you. Let me close with this little 
illustration. Remember that football coach from the University of Oregon? Well, a fan wrote on a website posting a comment, not expecting that the coach would actually read it, but the comment basically said, since I traveled from Oregon to Idaho to watch my team lose, which I didn't expect, and since I saw my team humiliate my university, which I didn't expect, I think it's reasonable that I should be reimbursed all of my travel expenses to Idaho. And he requested $439 for travel expenses. Now, a little bit of time passed, and lo and behold, he got a check in the mail for $439, signed not by the treasurer of the university, but by the coach personally. And here's what he said. As a sales guy, it's really hard to shut me up, sort of like the scribes and the Pharisees and sometimes like us. When I received that check, I was literally speechless. I think of Coach Kelly as a totally different person now. Here's the point. When you come to Christ, times you wrestle against him, you fight against him, and he does things you don't expect, even so much as to drop a hand grenade in your lap and explode your life just so you can be speechless before him. To quit asking questions, to quit questioning him and say, who are you, Jesus, to tell me this? but to think completely differently of Him so that your whole life now is oriented around Him. And just like Levi, when he says, follow me, you rise. You rise and come to Him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord in heaven, we confess that we have so little understanding of the glory, of the power, of the authority, of the goodness, of the grace, of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would submit our wills to him. We pray that we would come to him, not questioning him, not questioning his authority, not questioning his identity, but simply come to him and say, Lord, please lead And I will follow. May that be true of us today. May we be renewed in the fact that Jesus is so patient with us. He is so tender with us. And that he delights and loves humble servants. May we be humble and come to him in faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.